You know, I have been saying it for some time now, and I don't actually have to say it. You know it likely by experience. We are living in an increasingly hostile culture. And by that, I mean increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, our faith. Peter has been telling us, do good deeds in the name of Christ, even though it will cost you. I want you to know that that truth slapped me in the face this week. Most of you know that we are privileged to have Samaritan's Purse in our community, and many Samaritan's Purse, or I'll say SP, SP people are part of our church. Now, a disclaimer, I am a huge Samaritan's Purse fan. I believe uh, the work they do around the world in the name of Christ with the gospel at the forefront is extraordinary. Whether it's Operation Christmas Child, International Projects, World Medical Mission, North American Ministries, Franklin Graham's Festivals, or Decision America Tours, everything that they do is with the gospel out front. And I'm deeply thankful for that. And so maybe you saw on our local news or social media this week that SP deployed an emergency field hospital to Italy in the midst of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. You see, Italy actually has more deaths at last count this morning, although I think it's not been updated yet, about 5,000 deaths, more than anyone else from the virus to include China. Their healthcare system is overrun and they need help. So SP loaded their DC-8 and went to Italy last week right into the midst of danger. Of course, we know they did the same thing in those two Ebola crises, one in Liberia, another in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There was a movie made about Liberia appropriately named Facing the Darkness. That's what the church does, you see. That's what Christians do. We run to those who need help regardless of potential personal harm. So, so this news was posted on social media and our local news outlets, and you would think that there would be a, a celebration expressing gratitude for the people, largely medical, going to care for hurting patients in the midst of danger in the name of Christ. Well, I read through the comments, and I was largely encouraged, but also stunned let me read a couple to you of many I could read. I'll leave out any names to save them embarrassment. When the first Watauga resident, an SP employee, who had returned from taking the name of Christ around the world, when he tested positive for the virus, one reader posted, of course it's the fundies, I guess that means fundamentalists, and anti-science people who love spreading the disease, end quote. There is so much wrong with that statement, I hardly know what to say. But let me remind us, it was SP who scientifically and medically helped in the recent Ebola crises, and they are helping in the current coronavirus crisis, not spreading the disease, when the second Watauga resident tested positive and, and, and after SP sent the hospital to Italy, one commented, Samaritan's Purse took off to Italy yesterday. Leave them over there until this thing is over and don't let anybody else go to places like that, end quote. Really? 
I'll leave the acute, selfish nature of that comment to just hang there for a moment. There were a few other comments attacking the ministry of SP, largely selfish, like stay at home and take care of our own. Others questioning the integrity and transparency of the ministry. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that this is exactly what Peter is talking about. Do good works in the name of Christ and you will be slandered, maligned, attacked, and reviled for it. So I want to be one to say, good job, Samaritan's Purse. Keep up the good work in the name of Christ and his gospel. You see, we arrive today at the main purpose for which Peter wrote his letter to these suffering believers in Asia Minor, suffering for the cause of Christ. It will occupy his thoughts for most of the rest of the book. He's referenced it a few times already, but now it gets his full attention. Now, this passage has the verse with which most of us are familiar, being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. It's a great verse. But in its context, it's even better. Read the text with me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 say this. Who is there to harm you? Or perhaps I could say, what is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This is an incredible text. Did you notice the words like suffer, intimidation, slander, revile, and harm? This is what can be expected for followers of Jesus, especially as we seek to do good and speak good, namely the good news of Jesus. So how then do we respond? I mean, we try to do good and they call us names, fundies, anti-science, bigots, racists, intolerant, narrow, hateful, judgmental. They question our motives. They slander us. They seek to do us harm. How then do we respond? I know how I want to respond in the flesh. I know how irritated I was to read those responses in our social media. I want to defend myself. I want to attack back. Well, Peter has already told us how to respond in several previous verses. In chapter 2, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent. The word is beautiful among the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of his visitation. A few verses later, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Chapter two, verse 20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor 
with God. And then he goes on to cite the example of Christ. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, this is how we are to respond. And we're to be like Jesus. Then last week, chapter three, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, which again is what I want to do, but giving a blessing instead. Do you think that Peter is trying to get a point across? Maybe he's trying to say, don't be like Scott or, or, or don't be like me when I drew the sword and chopped off Malchus's ear. <laughs> you see, we are so subject to defensiveness, counterattack, slander, gossip, and the like. But my brothers and sisters, he is calling us to something so much higher. He's calling us to be like Jesus. In fact, he'll return to that thought um, next week. But for now, let, let me give you the very brief and simple outline of our text today. He starts with suffering for Christ in verses 13 and 14 and then responding in Christ, not, not in the flesh, but in Christ. In other words, as Christ would do and enables you to do. Peter actually starts with a rhetorical question, which requires a negative answer and actually begins with the word and. You see, he's just said, don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, and then he quotes Psalm 34 for support. So uh, now he asks, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The implied answer is, well, no one. And then no one can hurt you. And you say, wait, wait just a minute, what about Nero? What about ISIS? What about coronavirus or Ebola? You do understand all the promises of Scripture are true. We are God's children, and the best is yet to come. And so, what can people do to us? What can a virus do except perhaps speed our trip to heaven? Peter is asking this question ultimately, you see. He, he, he will say in verse 14, we may suffer, but what can people ultimately do to us? Paul asks it this way in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So who will bring a charge against God's elect? I mean, God is the one who justifies, the one who declares us righteous. So who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or I might add virus or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, talking about demonic powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is great news for followers of Jesus. Who then can do harm to us if we are zealous, the word means eager, if we are eager for doing what is good? Now again, a couple of years after this letter was written, if this question was posed in the church, the people would have collectively yelled out, well, Nero, he, he, he's the one who can harm us, really? Can Nero or any of his minions, can any who oppose you really do your harm? Do your worst. It will ultimately not prevail, is Peter's point. I've shared this quote with you before, but when the early church father Ignatius, under the persecutions of Rome, was... He was arrested, and he was facing imminent death. He's going to be thrown into the arena. He said, may the wild beasts be eager to rush upon me. If they be unwilling, I will compel them. Come, crowds of wild beasts. Come, tearings and manglings, racking of bones and hacking of limbs. Come, cruel tortures of the devil. Only let me attain to Christ. In other words, do your worst. You cannot ultimately hurt me. I want to remind us the best is yet to come. And there is nothing anyone can do to prevent us from our, uh, from, uh, to prevent our coming glory to be united with Christ. And so, verse 18, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, that is doing good, you, you are blessed. Now catch that. Not only are we to be a blessing if we are reviled and slandered. He said that last week, if evil is perpetrated against us. But, but in addition, we are blessed. Peter no doubt has the words of Jesus in mind from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, and that word is makarios. It speaks of, a, of an inward joy that is devoid of outward circumstances. You see, it doesn't matter what they do to us. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. You say, I don't think I really like the sounds of this. I mean, you're telling me that I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be opposed because of my faith. How is it that we are blessed? Well, Jesus says in two very significant ways. Number one, we prove that we are children of God, and as a result, ours is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to catch that. Heaven is our home. So what's the worst they can do to us? We are being reminded, yet again, this is not all there is. The best is yet to come, and the best yet to come is ours as followers of Jesus. And not only that, number two, our reward from the Father is great. You see, we are laying up treasures in heaven, which means I am not worried about a crashing stock market. I've got treasures laid up that no one can touch. So even if, notice he says, even if you should suffer, that's an interesting way to say it. You see, both Jesus and Paul tell us that we will suffer, we will be persecuted, we will be opposed. What does Peter mean when he says, even if you should suffer? Simply this, we don't suffer all the time. It is ours to suffer. That's part of the Christian life. He makes that clear throughout the book, but not all of the time, everywhere, and in every way. I mean, that's certainly been true in our own country. We've enjoyed a significant period of relative peace, but 
even if, or maybe better, even when we suffer in this increasingly hostile culture, we are blessed. And so he quotes Isaiah chapter eight. Very interesting. You see, in Isaiah, the southern kingdom of Judah was facing imminent attack from the northern kingdom of Israel who had teamed up with Aram, that is Syria, uh, Syria was getting ready to march against them, and, and, and so uh, the northern kingdom and Syria had teamed up together and wanted the southern kingdom to team up as well, and they refused. They actually teamed up with Assyria. That was a bit of a problem. Southern kingdom, though, was, was fearful because of this northern alliance. And so God says, don't be afraid of them. He says, I'm with you. Here, Peter applies that text to his readers. Yes, there will be those who attack you, who threaten attack, who oppose you, who persecute you. Don't be fearful of them and their threats. Don't be troubled by them. Rather, point two, verses 15 to 17, let me tell you how to respond to such threats and such harsh treatment. Instead of fear of of them, sanctify, it literally means set apart, Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's very interesting. Just a quick theological aside. Peter is here paraphrasing the very next verse in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 actually. And there Isaiah had said, don't fear them. Rather, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should sanctify, whom you should regard as holy, set apart. It is God that is Yahweh that you should fear. Here, Peter paraphrases it and says, instead of fearing those who oppose you, set apart or treat as holy. Who does Peter say? Christ, Jesus. Do you see how he readily switches from Yahweh, God, to Christ or Jesus? This happens all over the New Testament because you see Christ is God. I've said this before, but people who say that, that the scripture never clearly says that Jesus, of God, Jesus is God have never clearly read the Bible. So set apart Christ as Lord. That does not mean that we make him Lord. He already is. But we recognize him as Lord of our hearts. Now, the heart today, we think of, you know, I love you with all of my heart. We think of our emotions. But, but then it was the, the heart was the center of their being. All that they were, it was the center of their emotions and their will. Set apart Christ as Lord of all that you are. You don't need to fear what people will do to you. How can they ultimately um, do any harm to you with Christ as the Lord of, of all that you are? This brings us to this verse that is usually used to support the ministry of what we call Christian apologetics. In fact, the word defense is the word apologia, from which we get our word apologetics. And apologetics is the Christian discipline of defending the faith, of answering objections, of giving a reasonable and rational answer to questions and objections to the Christian faith. You've likely heard of some great Christian apologists like Ravi Zacharias or J. Warner Wallace or Norm Geisler or Josh McDowell. To be clear, these are great Christian thinkers and apologists, and there is a place for Christian apologetics. 
And it doesn't do violence to this text to use it in support of, of giving a defense or an answer to objections to the Christian faith. That works just fine. But in the context, Peter is talking to suffering believers. Frankly, he's talking to us. Don't just leave the job to the apologists. And he's instructing them, he's instructing us how to respond to suffering because of our faith. And, and when we respond rightly, the implication here is that people will want to know why. This is what he's been saying. Live such beautiful lives among unbelievers that even though they slander you, they will, because of your good deeds, glorify God on the day that he visits. Don't return evil for evil, insult for insult. Instead, you be a blessing. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine what people would think when they mistreat us? That we turn around and bless them instead? That's what he's trying to say. They'll want to know, what is wrong with you? What gives here? So you always, Peter is saying, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account, to give the reason for such, for such unusual hope. How do you do that? Hope is one of Peter's favorite words for the hope of the gospel, holding out the future inheritance that we're to receive. Here you are being persecuted, and you don't get down in the mouth. You don't get defensive. You don't become insulting. You remain hopeful. You remain kind, and you remain generous. You are actually blessing the very ones who oppose you. How can you do that? Well, let me tell you about the gospel. That's what he's saying. By, by the way, this also suggests that Christians do not withdraw. That is, Christians do not isolate themselves from unbelievers, this has been one of the challenges um, for the church over the last 150 years or so as, as the church began being attacked and it became less popular to be a Christian. We started, well, we started isolating and gathering in our own Christian subcultures. We're not supposed to do that. We are living among them. We're supposed to sh be good to them. We're to share Christ with them, even though they may oppose us. And such opposition, our response to such opposition can have an impact on them. So you be prepared. I want to say practically to us, we have been prepared to do good works. Uh, Ephesians chapter two says, that's what Christians do. We do so in order to care for people, yes, but also as we care for people, doing good works, it opens the way for us to share the gospel. We don't just do good for good's sake. I mean, we do good for good's sake, but it is actually more than that. I've heard it said this way, we do good works to build bridges of love that support the weight of truth. The, 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 the excellence of our work is the platform of our witness, another says. So we reach out into our community during times like these, frankly, all of the time, we do good, and then we share Jesus even when reviled, insulted, persecuted, oppressed, even when we're called fundies or anti-science people, which is frankly not true. Further, Peter says, share your hope with, when you do this, and this is, he's talking to me, when you do this, do the, share your hope with gentleness and respect. 
couple of quick ideas about that. Gentleness is the word we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It's the word praos, which could be translated gentleness or meekness. You see, we're not defensive even when wrong. Instead, we are gentle. We are supposed to be meek. We're kind. We're gracious. Remember, it doesn't mean that we're weak. That's not not the meaning of the word. Rather, it's power under control. We are a meek, humble people. That is if we want to be like Jesus. Let's make sure that we understand this. Christians, by their character, are not to be offensive. Some people have lost that. We're not to be offensive. The message of the gospel is offensive because it, well, it understands everyone to be sinners, and people don't like that. But we, by our behavior, are not to be offensive. We're supposed to share our hope. And we respond with respect. Certainly, it could mean respect toward people. We're supposed to be respectful to them. But this is another of Peter's favorite words, usually directed toward God. It's the word phobos. It's the word fear. He's already told us, don't fear people. Fear God. So when we respond with gentleness and respect, or better, respect, uh, gentleness and fear, it is most likely a reverential fear toward God. It is our reverential submission to him that causes our gentle defense of the faith. And then he goes on in verses 16 and 17 very quickly to talk a bit more about how to respond. First, we keep a good conscience. We, we do what is good, that is good deeds, rightly, Listen, with good motives to, to keep a clear conscience before God. He, he's, he's talking about why we do what we do from the, from the very heart of who we are. So that, notice, so then the very thing in which they slander us, even revile our good behavior, very interesting words, they will be put to shame. What does that mean? Couple of possibilities here, yes. They, they may be put to shame or ashamed in this life when they revile us uh, of all things, uh, doing good things like, I don't know, going to Italy. And perhaps like Peter said in chapter two, when they see our good deeds done with excellent or beautiful behavior, they will be shamed and ashamed of their behavior and eventually come to faith in Christ. That is our prayer. That's our hope, is it not? Again, building bridges of love to support the weight of truth. But a second possibility is this, and one which is intended to encourage suffering believers and perhaps fits the context a bit better. You keep your uh, behavior excellent with a good conscience, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but blessing instead, and ultimately, at the consummation of all things, at the judgment, those who have opposed you will be shamed. God, the one who judges rightly, will rightly take vengeance. They will get theirs, not from us, but from him. And with the final word this week, he reminds us in verse 17, make sure that your suffering is not for doing evil, but for doing good. He said basically the same thing back in chapter two when speaking of slaves. Yes, you will have unjust masters who will treat you harshly, but make sure that the harsh treatment is a result of you doing what is right, not of doing what is wrong. That seems clear enough. But here's what I want you to notice 
in this verse as we close. Yes, uh, you, you will suffer for, for doing good. Make sure that it's not for doing bad. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer. Those are hard words. That's a challenging verse. The implication is that contrary to the prosperity gospel, God may will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. This goes back to chapter one where he said, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. If necessary, the idea being as God wills it so. Paul said the same thing in Philippians chapter one. For to, for to you it has been granted. It, it's a gift for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also it's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. How, how is it God's will that we suffer? I won't take a trip through the scripture to point out all of the reasons, but in Peter, he brings two primary reasons to the forefront. First, it matures us, and it makes us more like Christ. It perfects us. It purifies us. It's for our good, and it's for his glory. And, but second, as we've seen today, as we live beautiful lives in the midst of suffering, people will ask us, about this crazy hope that we have. And, and we are then to be prepared to give an answer uh, for our hope. So our suffering is not only for our maturing and for our good, for God's glory, but it is for their good. It is for, the, it is for the, it, because it is through the good news of the gospel that people can come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as they ask us about how we are responding, we can share the hope of Jesus. And so can I encourage you, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste it. Respond with blessing. Respond with good deeds, good words. And then speak of your hope. And then let's watch what God will do as he will do what he does.